my mother would hate it if I spoke with gum in my mouth. So if you're listening, mother, that one was for you. Uh, all right. Well, let's dive into uh, Colossians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, that's where we will be spending time today. And um, last week, Randy started us off in Colossians 2 and really a, uh, a new kind of mini-series within Colossians 2. And what Paul was uh, struggling for in the life of the church, uh, in the Colossian church in particular. And uh, this morning we're going to be focusing... Uh, almost exclusively on verses 9 through 10. Now, we're going to go back into what Randy talked about last week. Uh, and it might feel a little long, and I'm going to try to kind of keep pace here. But the context, again, kind of bringing ourselves back up to speed about what Randy spoke on last week, it, it makes all the world of difference for our ability to kind of swallow and encapsulate and grasp and kind of get the handlebars of the truth of what he's saying in verse 9 and verses 10. So... Uh, verses 9 and verses 10 state this. uh, For in Christ, this is Colossians 2, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and every authority. Talking about these verses, this is where we're heading this morning. So I'm going to ask you a question right off the bat and this is an important one and then we'll come back to it. Do you believe, do I believe those of us who are in Christ this morning, that you are full. Do you believe that? It's hard to imagine that most of us actually got out on this rainy, gross day for for precisely the opposite sense or feeling, that we don't believe we're full. I don't feel full. In fact, if we were completely honest, you might not, not only not feel full, you might even not remotely, even close to feel full. In fact, if I were to ask you, some of you would use the adjective empty. I feel empty, and therefore that is why I am here, is because I want to be filled. I want to be full. I want to feel full. <laughs> Downtown, when I was preaching just a little while ago, I told this story, and literally while I was telling the story, I got a text. Um, one of the ways I see this in a very minute way playing out in my life is, is I've begun to get involved in eBay. And um, I'm trying to buy golf clubs on eBay, um, just specific clubs. Um, this has become somewhat of an infatuation. And I have been outbid in the last, like, eight auctions. I'm the guy who's, like, right beneath the guy who wins, and he won by, like, three cents more than I did within like, you know, you're, you're pressing the button. You're like, go, oh, bid, go through, and I lose. And uh, it's funny to me, uh, literally while I was telling the folks downtown what I'm telling you right now, I got a text from eBay saying, you're being outbid in an auction. <laughs> Please bid right now. Uh, so in real time, the Lord had that for me this morning. But uh, I'm not going to bid anymore on this, but uh, it's funny to me because my reaction to that, um, and we laugh about it and all that, but my reaction to losing that auction, to not getting that 54-degree golf club, oftentimes, if I'm, if I'm really honest and I, I, I kind of trace back how I'm acting 
what I'm feeling, uh, it exposes a very, very deep thing, a very, very underlying thing, which is, is I need that thing to feel full, to be full. That thing, that inanimate object that I hit a golf ball with is literally going to add fullness to my life. Do you believe that you're full already? What would it look like for you and I to live in the reality that we're already full? Before we dive into this, we're going to do this little recap. It's going to be, we're going to have to kind of grind hard here. Uh, Colossians 2, 1 through 8. Let's read this together. This is what Paul is saying prior to these verses in 9 and 10. He says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as, this is verse 6, you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on the human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, and these are our verses for today, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is head over every power and authority. So Randy last week began to lay the ground, lay the tracks for, for I believe, this truth and the, the next two sermons. He wanted to make it very clear that Paul was struggling. I mean, we talked about the awkwardness of saying that. I'm really, it's a, it's a struggle for me to be in a relationship with you. I'm, I'm fighting for something here. He, he wanted to communicate the emphatic nature of this truth. I, I am warring over this truth being real for you in the Colossian church and therefore real for us in this church. And he says very clearly he has a specific purpose, and Randy called these things the big three last week, a specific purpose for which he is struggling. He wants us to be encouraged in heart. He wants us to be united in love. And he wants us to experience what he calls full riches of complete understanding. So he follows up the declaration. These are the things that I, the big three things that I want for you guys. I am fighting. I'm struggling. Epaphras is carrying a letter for a year to get this information to you. This is what I want. What I believe the Lord wants for you. He follows up the declaration of those three with what we find in verses six through eight. Randy described this as being red rovered. Uh, I don't know if you remember the illustration. What is kind of broken through the line of truth and taking you captive? And what do we say? What do we read in verse 6? Just as you had received Christ, continue to live in him. The actual Greek for the word live in him is actually translated better to walk in him. So as you have received him, as you are rooted in him, continue to be built up in him. Continue to walk out that reality in your lives. We received Christ in a place of complete dependence, didn't we? Placing all of our hope and therefore all of our sense of fullness on him. 
Like if any of you can remember that moment where you really understood the gospel for the first time and you gave your life to the Lord and received his pursuit of you, isn't that really, wasn't it a, a moment of complete and utter dependence, of freedom? Ah, oh, thank you, God, that this doesn't depend on me. Paul is saying, stay in that place. Stay in that posture. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 51 is talking about, return to me the joy of my salvation. Bring me back to the place of the truth about what has saved my life, what makes me whole, what makes me complete, what makes me full. That's why it's funny. I mean, I think these terms are kind of odd, rooted and built up, aren't they? Rooted being a term of like immovability. It's planted. It's a static term. It's concrete. Built up is a term of progress. It's a term of action. It's motion. It's dynamic. It's addition. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. The first thing that Paul states after all of this in verse 8 and this really lays the groundwork for what we're going to say this morning, is that he is concerned about something. That no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Do you understand? Do you hear what these terms are are about? Hollow and deceptive philosophy. Philosophy, tradition, and principles. These are not terms of encouragement. They're not terms of united in love. These are terms of understanding. It's the last of the big three. I want full riches of complete understanding. I want you to understand something. So the first warning he gives is not about the first of the three. It's about the last of the three. And we'll see the importance of this in a second. But these are terms of understanding, of knowledge, of truth. What do you and I hold to be true? We, don't, we, we need to not miss the progression of this and the impact because what we understand profoundly impacts living out what it means to be united in love and encouraged in heart. I believe Paul understands something important here. He is really challenging the Colossian church to see this, the understanding, what you hold to be true, what your bottom line is. That is what leads to unity in love, to being united in love. Shared understanding is the grounds for true unity and love. And if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever experienced what it really means to be united in love with another person, it's hard to think of anything that's much more encouraging. To feel like we know and share that understanding on a very, very deep level. It's incredibly encouraging. Let me say this real quick before we go. United in love is something very, very different than living at peace. Romans 12, 18 says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. It's possible for us, isn't it, to live at peace with people who have incredibly different views of the truth. I can live at peace with somebody who thinks very, very differently than I do. It's even possible for us to love people who have incredibly different views than we do of the truth as a result of the, of the gospel, of what Christ says and calls us to. And the gospel literally empowers us to the point, it talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that you could actually love somebody who is your enemy. So that's possible to live at peace and even to love people, but that is not what he is getting at. This is much 
much more intricate and significant than that. To be united in love is a statement reflecting deep agreement. A love that stems from a deep understanding, a shared value of the truth. You see, this is important. Paul's writing this. Don't forget this, a letter to the Colossian church. He's not writing it just to random people anywhere. He's writing it to the church, y'all. In other places and other scriptures, he teaches that the church is the actual body of Christ. This right here, I know it doesn't always look like it, but it's working in harmony. It's united in such a way it depends on the other parts. United in love, being united in love, is essential to the healthy functioning of us as a body. Randy talked about this last week. Wherever the head goes, the body follows, right? Philippians 2, 1 says it like this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion that make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. N.T. Wright is a scholar um, who I thought said this just brilliantly. United, so in the big three, encouraged in heart, united in love, full riches and understanding. United properly governs not only in love, but also the next phrase, which literally means an unto all the wealth of conviction and understanding. In other words, while the process of knitting together the church into a body clearly includes the growth of love, it also includes the growth on the part of the whole community of that proper understanding of the gospel, which leads to the rich blessings of a settled conviction and assurance. You see, this makes what we understand what we believe about the gospel, guys. What we believe about who Christ is and who we are now as those who are in Christ. It is completely integral to us living out and cultivating the other two of the big three. We will not be people who are united in love or encouraged in heart if we are not people who have the full riches of complete understanding and we share that understanding. So what does Paul want us to understand? What is verse 9 and 10 all about? What is he warning us to be careful? Don't be taken captive here. I mean, it's the first thing, guys. It's, he says, don't be taken captive, and then this is the first thing he says. That's important, right? Listen to me when your parents say that. You want to listen to the next thing they're about to say. And this brings us back to our initial question. Are you full this morning? If you are a Christ follower, if Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, are you full or are you not? Well, there are some things to unpack. The first part is this. Verse 9, for, all, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Fullness of deity. Now, I'm not going to get into this at any length, but this was what was causing massive controversy in the early church. And I'm not talking about the first 10 or 15 years of the church. I'm talking about hundreds of years of the early church. I'm talking about the reason that creeds happened, that councils of Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon occurred was almost entirely on this single issue. Is 
Christ actually God? Now, there were other things that God decided, but what I'm saying is, is that this is so absolutely fundamental to what we believe, to our understanding. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. Now, we see that in the Old Testament. God communicated himself in a variety of ways. Prophets, miracles, all different kinds of stuff. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. You see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? That single sentence is a claim on the fact that of the pre-existence of Christ before creation. He is saying, don't be mistaken. Christ is the fullness of God. He's a part of the Trinity. And we're not going to get into all that this morning, but this is a validation of his deity. He goes on to say, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And T. Wright says it like this, Paul's point is that the incarnation, the taking of bodily form by God, was and is the solid reality in which were fulfilled all of the earlier foreshadowings. It's the, such a great way to say it, the solid reality of everything we see in the Old Testament, the earlier foreshadowings, all of the ancient promises that God would dwell with his people. Paul is laying out the essentiality of grasping that the person, in the person of Christ, God dwells with his people. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. God's promise to redeem relationship between man and himself Exodus 29:45 says this. I mean, this is Old Testament leading to Christ, guys. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell with them. I'm going to try to string this together and then we're really going to hit hard on 9 and 10. Remember earlier that Paul states in that first part, he wants us to have full riches of complete understanding And he follows that sentence up with this, that they would understand the mystery of God, namely Christ. So he refers to Christ as actually the mystery of God. And this is the second mention of a mystery in this actual book that he longs for us to grasp. Now, a few months ago, we probably preached on this in Colossians 1. 1.25 says this, I've become its servant by the commission God gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. You see the parallel here with Hebrews? But it is now disclosed to the saints. It is now revealed to us in the person of Christ. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mercy. Or or sorry, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want you to grasp, the, have full riches of complete understanding. And he describes the, this as the glorious riches of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. What he's saying is that the glorious riches are understanding the profundity of what that means. Our understanding of the mystery of God in Christ has massive impacts on our understanding of the mystery of what does it mean that Christ has made his home in us. 
So we have been given, Paul says here, fullness in Christ. And this is where I want us to lean in. This is where it gets super practical here. Because when I consider the hollow and deceptive philosophy that depend on human tradition and basic principles of this world, we could talk about what was going on in the Colossian church, the heresies and things like that, but we don't even have to go back that far. We can just go back to my eBay story or a lot of other things. <laughs> and this is where it really starts, kind of the rubber meets the road for us. And I've, I've, this is one of the basic principles, and we're just going to focus on this one this morning, one of the basic principles that I believe has taken us captive has literally pirated us away from the truth. And it's called, I've called it, I've termed it, the basic principle of addition. And if you look at TV and don't get all like, oh, he's being down on TV, I love TV. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you look at TV, what is a 30-minute program anymore? I mean, it's 18 minutes, right? I mean, this is why they invented TiVo, right? So I don't have to watch commercials. Because what is a 30-minute time slot really is 18 minutes of actual show and now 12 minutes of commercials. And what are those commercials saying to you? What are they saying to me? They're saying that whatever I'm showing you, you need this. And you need this because they're, they're actually pandering to, they're trying to take us captive. Don't, don't go crazy here. I'm not saying we don't need to buy things. But what I'm saying is, is they're, they're, they're consciously and subconsciously lodging a very very diametrically opposed message to this truth that Paul is saying here. Everything in our economy, our culture, our marketplace values is lodging this message, and it's this. What you need to feel and therefore be full or whole or complete is something that you need to add to your life. It's not something that you already have. It's something that's out there. And even the commercial basically says this, and my eBay losses say this, and you better get it before someone else does because there's only so much room at the table and only so much to go around. I was talking with my friend Matt Edmark, and he gave me this term. The, he says that basically it's an economy of scarcity, that, that what we need to feel full, there isn't an abundance of it. It's scarce. And only the people with the money or with the talents or whatever can get a hold of it. And so you better get busy securing what it is that's going to make you feel full and you better do it quick because there's only so much of it to go around. Well, the gospel does the jujitsu on that. It, it freaking flips it around pretty darn quick because the gospel is an economy of abundance. It's, it's the complete opposite. It says the table is spread and the table is, is big enough for everyone to belly up to. So, so start drinking and start eating. Get into it because guess what? You'll spend the rest of your life trying to understand the profundity of what it means that Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. You will never exhaust the resources of this table. The gospel is not an economy of scarcity. It's an economy of abundance. So get to the table, people, and start eating. Joel told me about the REI sale at New Year's Day. I use this downtown. I'm sorry, bro. You didn't use it in a few weeks. I'm just going to, I'm not, oh, I'm going to use it again. Line of people, open the door. What's going on? He told me that they had teams of people, 
like women and all their kids. It's like, you go to this corner. And then they're just going around to these giant bins of crap. And they're just like armful. They're not even looking. They're just running with like, they look like walking clothes racks, just armfuls of stuff, wading over and throwing it down and like screaming at their 10-year-old like, look for North Face, look for Archterix. And they're just, just because, you know, everybody just got to get it. Like, I don't even know whether I want this, but I just... It's this fever-pitched environment where I just have to gather everything and, God, I hope this stuff makes me feel full. I mean, it's silly and it's, it's crazy, but, and I was probably buried under one of those mountains of clothes, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, we live like that a lot of days. The doors open, there are the bins, and I don't care whether you've got to knock people over to get that vest that you want. That vest is fullness. And you got to get it. We struggle to believe and to live in the functional trust of the reality that Paul is making infinitely clear here. Christ is the fullness of God and you have been given fullness in Christ. Have been given. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. You may not understand it, you may not know how to live in it, but that doesn't mean anything about whether it's true or not. Second Peter 1, 3, if you're around here long enough, you'll hear this verse, or you've heard it. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, the truth, so that through them, through the truth... Through understanding, you may participate in the divine nature. You could go to the sale and not turn into a rabid animal, but, but walk around, hoping that maybe you would find something, but knowing that nothing you're going to find is going to make any difference to whether you're full or not. Participating in the divine nature. So if this is all true, everything that I've said... It's true if you believe what I'm saying right now, what the Lord's saying. This is true. Then why is it that I rarely feel or experience that sense of fullness? This is the itch that we all want scratched. Why is it that I don't feel whole? That I don't feel complete? And I think Paul gives us at least a clue, if not the just bold answer in verses 6 through 8. And it's this. I must have in some way been taken captive. Something has taken me captive. I've been red-rovered. Something has broken through and has fractured my experiential understanding of the gospel. Now I'm going to talk about two types of capture, being taken captive. There's overt, like things that are just easy to see. Like I got hammered and I'm in jail and, and okay, clearly... Uh, because of my public intoxication and wrecking my vehicle, something has taken primacy in my life. That's a pretty overt thing that we can trace. Um, And we all have those things. Overt capture is any time where I fall headlong into something that I believe will deliver on the promise of making me full. I just buy into it completely. And these are things that are easy to pick on. Consumerism my eBay addiction, sex, substances, 
this is a little more fickle. How about relationship consumption? If I just had a few more relationships, or if I had her, or if I had him, then, then I would be full. Again, all these things, they're not bad things. They're not bad in and of themselves, but when they're made absolutes, when they're made ultimate things, we've been taken captive. Most of my relationships with women until the age of 25 looked like this. A complete placement of belief that if I had you, it would make me whole. It would make me full. And listen to this, because this is important. Addition of even good things, because adding relationships isn't a bad thing. Addition of even good things without a proper understanding and functional trust of our fullness in Christ. So if you add something, but you're not living in the fullness that you already have, always leads to idolatry. It always leads to the added things getting crushed under the weight of a hope that they could never fulfill or deliver on. And oftentimes those things aren't golf clubs, they're people. We crush them with the weight of it because I'm adding something without understanding that I'm already full. So that's overt capture. What about subtle capture? Oftentimes it's even difficult to ascertain where I've been taken captive. Isn't it? I mean, it's hard. Satan in his work oftentimes is like a slow drip IV. I'm not going to keep doing it. Uh, it's almost unable to perceive. It's, a, it's slowly eroding the truth in an almost untraceable fashion. And it usually takes some kind of crisis to expose the reality that the erosion has been taking place. That slowly and subtly, I've been just, not, not like a complete overt thing, I've just been taking one, one step to the right, one step to the right, until my back is completely turned on the truth. This is like my golf swing. Joel and I play golf. Joel has a trained eye. He says things to me, things like, oh, you, you know, your hands got quick. Like, what does that mean? Or, you know, there's all these different terms that you can say, but the truth is, is that on the first hole, I'm thinking and I'm sound on what I'm about to do, and I maybe drive the ball pretty decently. By about the fifth hole, subtly, things start to change. My alignment, my feet. I get hunched over because my legs are getting tired, whatever. If you were untrained, if you had an untrained eye, you maybe wouldn't even notice that anything had changed from hole one to hole six. But if you have a trained eye like Joel does, he sees it. He sees that something subtly has changed. And that subtle change is the difference between being in the fairway and being in the trees. And it all looks the same, right? Unless you know what to look for. Paul, this is another anti-right quote, does not say that the Colossians have already been deceived. But from a long experience, he knows that a work of grace is followed by an attack from the enemy. And the one regular form of this attack may be may take is the clever plausibility this is so good of a teaching near enough to the truth to be apparently respectable 
and far enough away from it to be devastating in its effects on individuals and congregations. So not something that's just way to the right or to the left, but just one tick to the right, one tick to the left. It looks, smells close enough to the truth, but it's devastating over time. Either way, whether it's overt capture or subtle capture for you, what's at stake is our ability to live in the reality of our fullness of Christ. And how this happens is the last thing I'll say. And what I believe Paul gives us a sense of in the closing of verse 10. He says that Christ is the head over every power and authority. Wright says it like this, all power structures, ancient or modern, whether political, economic, racial, have the potential to become a rival to Christ, beckoning his followers, Christ's followers, us, to submit themselves to them in order to find a fuller security. When we live as those who must add to become full, don't miss this. If you hear anything, don't miss this. When we live as those who must add to become full, we live under the headship, the rule, the authority of whatever we have decided has the ability to, del- to deliver on that fullness. It literally becomes your master. You obey it. It rules you. We live under its headship. What we're speaking here of is in, in its most rudimentary form and definition, it's idolatry. Keller says it like this, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. He goes on to say that the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe how people relate to the idols of their hearts. They love them. They trust them. They obey them. When I have to add to my life to become full, when I buy into the basic principle of addition that I am not full in Christ, I literally, whatever I'm saying, I have to add. My affections are set on that thing. My trust is in that thing. Therefore, my hope is in that thing. And therefore, I will obey it. Because the thought of not having it means I'm not full. And so I have to have it at all costs. When we don't understand that we are full, that we are complete, whole in Christ, we are powerless to keep from seeking that fullness elsewhere. Randy says it, Joel says it all the time, you have to set that fullness down to pick up something else. So what do we do? Two practical things. And these are quick, but they're important. And it's going to sound contradictory. Seek deeper understanding. Add to your understanding. Now, I know I just bashed addition, but this is not adding to your fullness. It's grasping the depth of your fullness. It's adding to your understanding of the fact that you're already full. Become, by God's grace, a student of the two mysteries that Paul is teaching about. That Christ is God and that Christ is in you. I mean, seriously, why would we teach a class called Gospel 101? I've heard people say this about Midtown before. Midtown always talks about the Gospel. Like, when are we going to stop teaching the Gospel and get on to, like, the other things the church is about? I mean, isn't that funny to you, though? 
We talk about the gospel all the time, and now we're going to do a six-week study in the evenings on the gospel. Why would we do that? You're rooted in it. We want you to be built up in it. I want to be, I need to be built up. I need to deepen my understanding of what's already true. And the second thing is this. So seek, seek deeper understanding, add to your understanding. The second is this. Ask for revelation and conviction. Ask the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes, guys, these things are so subtle. Convict my heart. I don't even know where I've been taken captive. Oftentimes, I can look at my uncontrollable emotions and that'll give me a pretty good indication. But I don't know where I've been taken captive. In fact, I'd even go this far. Ask someone else who has the Holy Spirit living in them. Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Ask your good friend who knows you. Do you see any place in my life where I have been overtly or subtly taken captive? And that I live as someone who is not full and therefore live as someone who is a slave to that basic principle of addition. You are full. You don't need to add anything to it. Ecclesiastes 12 says this. The words of the wise are like goads. Goads were things that they, shepherds directed sheep in the direction they wanted to go. They're collected sayings, so the whole collection of them are like firmly embedded nails. Let the nails embed, guys. They're like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, do not add anything to them. You don't need to add anything to your life. If you're in Christ this morning, you are full. Let's pray. Lord, this is incredibly difficult. Uh, And even as I hear myself say it, I know that I I struggle to trust it practically. Um, So Lord, I just ask that you would, by your grace, um, move that truth out of my head and into my hands and feet, and you would do that for my brothers and sisters here, that we would be people who live as free people because we're full people. (laughs) That you would convict us of the places that we're trying to add so much to try to accomplish a fullness that's already been completed in you. We love you. In your name, amen.